Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast contains references to suicide that may be disturbing to some listeners. It's 1910. The movie business is booming in Australia and Charles' cousin Spencer is the nation's greatest showman. Aided by his wife, Mary, a.k.a. the Senora, long said to be the only lady projectionist in the world. Spencer controls two of the biggest motion picture theatres in the country, the Lyceum in Sydney and Worth's Olympia in Melbourne. And between them, he sells tens of thousands of tickets every week. A major importer and distributor of the best films made in England, Europe and the United States, Spencer's Pictures also supplies showmen all over Australia and New Zealand. And for the past five years, Spencer has also produced successful local documentaries and newsreels of Australia's scenic splendours, its urban sprawl, its political and social events, its triumphs and its tragedies. But now Spencer is branching out into fictional feature films, determined to make Australia proud and make himself a lot more money. In the next two years, his production output will be prodigious, until a business betrayal will not only ruin his career, but cripple the local film industry and ultimately lead to a violent tragedy on the other side of the world. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the second and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, Spencer, from movie mogul to murderer. By March 1910, the Spencers were a very wealthy couple, having made a fortune showing and making motion pictures for the better part of the past decade. While Spencer had been born in England and Mary in Scotland, They were true believers in Australia and its vast potential to be one of the world's movie-making capitals. And this was best symbolised by Spencer's pictures having a kangaroo as its trademark. As the country's greatest showman, Spencer knew what sold tickets. Scenic motion pictures, such as his series Picturesque Sydney, still did good business, but they weren't as popular as longer dramatic films. The world's first feature film, 1906's The Story of the Kelly Gang, had been a roaring success and had inspired a handful of crowd-pleasing movies based on the adventures of real-life bushrangers. And this was the genre Spencer would exploit for his debut long film. But he had to be careful. Ever since the Kelly Gang movie, bushranger films had come in for criticism that they might inspire actual criminality. There was even talk of a ban. No doubt Spencer factored this in when choosing to film the story 
of John Vane. While John Vane had run with Ben Hall's bushranger gang in the mid-1860s, he was an unusual outlaw in that he'd given himself up to authorities rather than go the way of the noose or the bullet. After serving prison sentences totaling 11 years, Vane went straight and lived the rest of his life as a productive citizen before passing away in 1906 at the ripe old age for then of 63. A biography of Vane had been published in late 1908, so Spencer had a ready-made audience for his film version. With cinematography by Arthur Higgins, brother of Ernest, who'd shot the Burns-Johnson fight for Spencer in 1908, the life and adventures of John Vane, the notorious Australian bushranger, was directed by an actor named S.A. Fitzgerald. The S.A. stood for Stephen Australia, and the film starred two of his sons. The film premiered at Melbourne's Worths Theatre on the 11th of March 1910 and had its Sydney premiere a day later at the Lyceum before rolling out around the country. The Life and Adventures of John Vane is a lost film, but a Launceston Examiner review gives us a good sense of the film's appeal and approach. Quote, Judging by the applause which greeted the title slide, the subject aroused considerable interest. Vane was presented as a typical Australian bushman, tall, straight, active, wiry, a splendid horseman with pleasant countenance and kindly disposition, his appearance and manner being the very opposite of what one might expect to find in a bushranger. Vane's life was more suitable for presentation than the majority of subjects of this class and the narrative was clear, unvarnished, animated. The management wisely refrained from depicting anything that might have bad effect. The Age newspaper's patriotic pride was typical. Quote, Australian actors and Australian photographers were exclusively employed in the production, which compares more than favourably with any of the imported films of like character that have been shown from time to time. The Life and Adventures of John Vane was enough of a commercial success that it, along with 1910's other successful local feature, The Squatter's Daughter, opened the floodgates for local film production. In the coming year, about 50 would be made, many of them by Spencer and many of them feature length, which is all the more astounding because the United States wouldn't produce its first feature length film until 1912. In mid-1910, Spencer and the Signora made one of their frequent fact-finding and film-buying visits to the Northern Hemisphere. On their return in November, they stopped briefly in Perth, where Spencer had taken a 10-year lease on the Theatre Royal, and he gave an interview to the West Australian newspaper. Illustrating the expansion of the film business overseas, Spencer related an anecdote about an English colleague who'd been asked if London could possibly support its 300 picture halls. The movie showman had guffawed and said, quote, Chicago, which is only one-third of the size of London, has over 600 halls and practically all of them are continuous shows running from the middle of the afternoon until late at night. Overcrowded? Why, London is merely scratching on the fringe of the business. Spencer was every bit as evangelical and he expressed his reasoning almost religiously, saying the film business would go on, quote, just as long as nature itself goes on moving. The picture is a complementary of life. Consequently, while life, that is, motion, exists, the moving picture will exist. It may contain a few germs of disintegration or decay, so does everything human, but the elements that make for stability, longevity and permanency infinitely outnumber those which make for decay. For the moving picture gratifies a fundamental craving of all our natures, namely, to see the movement of life, reproduced by scientific means. Back in Sydney, Spencer hired the remnants of the late actor-writer Alfred Dampier's stage troupe, 
which was headlined by his daughter Lily Dampier and her husband, the actor-director Alfred Rolfe. But it was their supporting player, Raymond Longford, who would, after Spencer's early patronage, go on to be Australia's most significant early filmmaker. With Dampier, Rolfe and Longford, Spencer embarked on another bushranger epic, an adaptation of Alfred Dampier's play, Captain Midnight, The Bush King. The story had anti-hero Edgar Dalmore falsely accused of his father's murder, and the film followed his escape from prison and him becoming Captain Midnight in order to clear his name and secure the love of a good woman. Where the John Vane film had skirted morals concerns with its message of redemption, this one was about an innocent man seeking justice. To oversee production of Captain Midnight, Spencer hired an Englishman named Alan J. Williamson, who'd been in the picture business in London. Thanks to Williams' reminiscences, we have an idea of what production was like on this Spencer film. Without a studio and lights, interior scenes were avoided. Instead, the company travelled each morning to locations on Sydney's northern beaches and Blue Mountains. There, working from a scenario that amounted to only five or six pages, the cast and crew heatedly thrashed out each scene before rehearsing. Then, Ernest Higgins rolled his camera and often faced technical problems. Even so, they got five or six scenes in the can per day. Each night at the Lyceum, footage was processed and screened, with any inadequate scenes reshot the following day. Given Captain Midnight comprised 13 sequences, it seems likely that shooting wouldn't have taken more than two weeks. Once they'd wrapped, Alan Williamson recalled, any gaps in the story were simply filled by title cards, written by whoever was to hand. From early February 1911, newspaper ads for the Lyceum declared, quote, Look out Thursday 9th, Captain Midnight, an Australian production by ourselves. Praised for its blend of drama, action, romance, humour and heroism, this was another critical favourite and box office success. But at the same time that Captain Midnight was galloping through cinemas, the Australian film industry was taking its first major step towards monopoly. In March 1911, Johnson and Gibson and J and N Tate, who'd produced the Kelly Gang film five years earlier, merged their interests to form Amalgamated Pictures. Their goals were the same as Spencer's, to import the best films and produce their equal in Australia and the ad announcing the merger proclaimed the company was, quote, the greatest picture enterprise in the Southern Hemisphere. Hot on the heels of Spencer's Captain Midnight came his Captain Starlight, The Gentleman of the Road, which premiered at the Lyceum in March 1911. Based on Alfred Dampier's stage adaptation of Rolf Boldrewood's Robbery Under Arms, the film was directed by and starred Alfred Rolf, who again played opposite his wife, Lily Dampier. Making her film debut in a supporting role was Lottie Lyle, who was Raymond Longford's partner in life, love and filmmaking, and who would become Australia's first movie star. Advertisements assured audiences that Captain Starlight was, quote, the humane bushranger of history and that the film had been made by, quote, a purely Australian company. The ads also made sure everyone knew who was boss. Quote, other local productions to follow in rapid succession. Three full companies are in full swing on same. Spencer's is alive to the wants of the people, which he studies carefully. Spencer wasn't exaggerating when he said more films would follow in rapid succession and he would release five more long dramatic films in 1911 alone. The first was The Fatal Wedding, based on the turn-of-the-century play of the same name that had been hugely successful on Broadway and the West End. When staged in Australia in 1910, The Fatal Wedding had starred Raymond Longford and Lottie Lyle. 
Now, for Spencer, Longford wrote the adaptation and made his directorial debut. On screen, he reprised his role as the husband whose love for his wife, again played by Lyle, is sullied by a predatory femme fatale. Sydney's Sunday Times newspaper was pleased that the story had been adapted for local audiences. Quote, Although the play is American, Mr C. Spencer is justified in presenting the movie as an example of Australian art. Everything about the play in its new form is Australian. The Sydney Morning Herald was also impressed. Quote, The acting throughout is of a very high standard and all the great features and powerful scenes of the drama are most vividly and clearly portrayed. Made for £500, The Fatal Wedding, which ran just over 40 minutes, reportedly recouped a fortune for Spencer. Working at a cracking pace, Spencer's company followed up The Fatal Wedding with bushranger film Dan Morgan, Notorious Australian Outlaw, which was released in May 1911. The film, directed by Alfred Rolfe and starring his company, was this time from an original script based on the historical record. Where Spencer's previous bushranger films had been about anti-heroes and included elements of romance, this one was about a cold-blooded killer. Not for nothing was Dan Morgan known as Mad Dog Morgan, and it lit up the silver screen with depictions of his violent crimes before he died in a hail of bullets. Spencer's argument was that by showing the evil that men do and the fate that awaits such transgressors, audiences would be swayed from making similar mistakes themselves. This reasoning was largely accepted in the excellent reviews that the film garnered, but not everyone was so sure. Sydney's referee newspaper asked, quote, whether the doings of bushrangers are proper subjects for exhibition when there is a danger of the young receiving bad impressions at a picture show. No good purpose is served by illustrating the criminal side of life in Australia. Over the next 18 months, this backlash, which was in large part a response to Dan Morgan, would see the governments of South Australia, Victoria and New South Wales ban bushranger films to protect fragile minds, while at the same time hypocritically allowing the wholesale importation of American cowboy movies that were every bit as violent and supposedly antisocial. Before these bands, Spencer got in with another bushranger film, The Life of Rufus Dawes, which, directed by Alfred Rolfe, was adapted from Marcus Clarke's for the term of his natural life. When Alfred Rolfe left to work for another film company, Spencer looked almost exclusively to Raymond Longford to be his director. August 1911 saw the Lyceum premiere of Lottie Lyle's first starring role in lady convict drama The Romantic Story of Margaret Catchpole, in which she played opposite Raymond Longford. The Sydney Morning Herald reported a crowded house, quote, had their expectations more than realised. Its review went on. Mr Spencer has now produced several Australian taken and manufactured pictures, all of which have been of the highest class, but it's questionable if he has done anything better than his latest effort. The review praised the cinematography, scenery, costumes and even the horses. Meanwhile, Lottie Lyle's Margaret was, quote, charming and carries the sympathies of the audience with her. What separates the romantic story of Margaret Catchpole from Spencer's other dramas, which are all lost, is that you can still watch 26 minutes of its 36-minute running time. Next, Raymond Longford worked with hugely popular stage actress Nellie Stewart when she reprised her role in his adaptation of the play Sweet Nell of Old Drury. And this was another critically acclaimed commercial hit for Spencer. Spencer had released seven dramatic films in 1911, But this was just the beginning. He was going to ramp up production even further by spending 
£10,000 to build and outfit a film studio at Rushcutters Bay in Sydney. Writing of this ambition, the theatre magazine said, quote, Mr Spencer's venture, besides being a big thing from his own individual speculative standpoint, also means a big thing to Australia and Australians. It is an accepted principle in the motion picture trade that there is a worldwide demand for every good picture turned out, particularly if there is any fresh, distinctive atmosphere about it, such as there would in the Australian pictures Mr Spencer intends to produce. Consequently, every picture that leaves his factory to be shown outside Australia would be a veritable Australian immigration lecturer. Spencer's films were not only going to be a great advertisement for Australia, but they'd also keep 30 performers in constant work, and he was going to employ at least another 20 film technicians. Spencer's other big move in 1911 was taking his company public. As part of this process, he made some of his company's financial figures available, and they showed just how rich Spencer had become. His most recent annual profit was £25,478, $3.4 million in today's money, and his company's assets were valued at nearly twice that figure. The formation of Spencer's Pictures Limited in September further lined his pockets. There were 150,000 shares issued, valued at £1 each, and Spencer took 55,000 of them, along with £45,000 in cash, making his slice of the company and payment worth about $13.5 million today. But while Spencer would take the title of managing director, he had relinquished control of the business. Further, as part of the agreement, he also signed a no-compete clause, which stipulated he couldn't establish, partner in, or operate a competing film exhibition or distribution business, or allow his name to be used in connection with such a venture. And this would come back to bite him. In late 1911, Spencer and the Senora made another motion picture pilgrimage to England, Europe and America, this time spending almost a year away. During this tour, Spencer visited with Thomas Edison in New Jersey, spending four days with the old man as he worked feverishly at his inventions and slept very little. Spencer secured a distribution deal for Edison's films, along with the Australian rights to import his new Kinetophone sound system. Spencer also did a deal with Vitagraph, then the United States' number one production studio, and in England and Europe, he secured the rights to a number of upcoming blockbuster epics. As Spencer wheeled and dealed abroad, his company went from strength to strength back in Sydney. Tide of Death, Raymond Longford's crime melodrama starring Lottie Lyle, was released at the newly remodelled and improved Lyceum in mid-April 1912 to the usual good box office. In June 1912, Spencer's Pictures released A Camera in the Clouds, which had been shot by Ernest Higgins over the span of 18 pioneering flights with William E. Hart, who, seven months earlier, had become the first licensed pilot in Australia. A Camera in the Clouds was the first film taken from the air in this country. Back on Earth, construction of the Rushcutters Bay studio continued apace and it was a sight to behold. The building comprised three storeys, with the ground and first floors housing offices, prop and wardrobe rooms, projection theatre, dressing rooms and film processing labs. But the top floor? That was where the magic happened, in a studio encased in plate glass to make the most of Sydney's daylight without the cast and crew having to worry about being rained on or blown about by the wind. On the 16th of August 1912, the Rushcutters Bay studio was opened by the New South Wales Premier, Mr James McGowan, with the state leader even cranking the camera on a sequence of Longford and Lyle's The Midnight Wedding, 
the first film to be shot at the studio and a production that could have as many interior set scenes as necessary. When Spencer and the Signora returned from their overseas tour in late November, he declared himself extremely satisfied with everything that had taken place in his absence. Spencer told Sydney's The Sun newspaper he was delighted with how the midnight wedding had turned out. Quote, Our previous attempts at local production are totally eclipsed by the Midnight Wedding, which, with its acting, photography, mounting and costuming, raised the standard to a particularly high plane. Spencer also believed the Rushcutters Bay studio to be equal to any of the facilities he'd seen while overseas. And the studio was only going to get better. Among the goodies Spencer had brought back with him were new mercury vapour arc lights. He told The Sun that these, quote, will enable us to take pictures not only in the daytime, but all night through, so that when it is necessary to rush a production, the cameraman will be able, if he so desires, to do so without the natural light of the sun. Filmmaking would also be more flexible, he said, with the new British handheld camera he'd brought back with him which, with its built-in gyroscope, took film as steadily as bulkier tripod-mounted cameras. Spencer told the Daily Telegraph, quote, We are going to produce pictures now, not only for Australia, but for the world's markets. I have made all arrangements for marketing the Australian products in America, England and on the continent. We expect to have at least two dramatic companies going in a very short time and we will produce 1,000 feet of films a week and an extra feature film once a month. The pictures made in Australia will be a great advertisement for this country. The Midnight Wedding, Longford and Lyle's romantic military drama, was now complete and upon its release in early December 1912, it was a showcase for what was possible at the Rushcutters Bay studio, and critics thought it yet another advance of the cinematic art in Australia. A reviewer for Sydney's The Sun newspaper wrote, It is doubtful if anything finer than Spencer's Midnight Wedding has previously been screened here in dramatic film productions. The Spencer firm may justly be proud of its achievement, and it is very likely that this series will mark the beginning of a big Australian industry. Dramatic subjects so capitally acted and so finely set must attract attention abroad as well as at home. Spencer's movie business appeared to be going from triumph to triumph. But behind the scenes, trouble was brewing. While the Rushcutters Bay studio and the Midnight Wedding had been completed in Spencer's absence, so too had a business deal that, though perhaps not legally a betrayal, had to feel like a stab in the back. In May 1912, the board of directors of Spencer's Pictures had voted to merge with the competition. Spencer's Pictures was to be but one part of a firm that also comprised Amalgamated, the business that had been formed by Gibson, Johnson and the Tates a year earlier, and West's Pictures, run by Spencer's fiercest rival, TJ West. Six months later, with Spencer still overseas, this deal was finalised. But before long, this new company expanded further to absorb the business interests of showman J.D. Williamson, the last of Spencer's keenest competitors. This new movie monolith's exhibition arm was to be called Union Theatres and its distribution and production operations would come under the banner of Australasian Films. Yet this new entity would be known far and wide simply as The Combine. The Combine's Union Theatres now had 29 of the country's biggest movie palaces under its direct control but there were still more than 600 other independent picture theatres around Australia. This was where the Combine's Australasian films operation wielded the real power, distribution. The company's size meant it was able to negotiate exclusively with the biggest film producers in the world for imported product. 
If Australia's smaller showmen wanted to keep showing movies, they'd have to access them on the Combine's terms. That meant higher distribution fees and a block booking system whereby cinema operators had to take every movie the Combine dictated to them sight unseen. Any independent operator showing non-Combine movies longer than 1,000 feet would be denied future imported films, effectively driving them out of business. If the Combine sounds like a ruthless monopoly, that's because it was. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. At first, Spencer, at least publicly, seemed unfazed, denying claims that the combine would mean steeper prices for audiences. And as 1912 ended and 1913 began, Spencer's operations continued much as they had. As the year progressed, his theatres showed the incredible new movies coming out of Italy, whose rights he'd secured at enormous expense during his overseas tour. These were super-spectacle films on a scale never before seen. The first of these was Quo Vadis, which at 8,200 feet, or two hours, would, for the first time in Australian history, comprise an entire cinema program. With huge sets, lavish costumes and 5,000 extras, this epic was the Gone with the Wind or Titanic of its day. Here's how Spencer described the film to Sydney's Sunday Times newspaper. In all my long association with great film plays, I have never seen anything to approach the magnificence and grandeur of this history-making conception. The splendour of the ancient court of Rome, with its wealth of pageant, spectacular and stirring episodes, is reproduced with a realism bordering on the uncanny and the rapidly changing scenes hold the interest to such an extent that when the whir of the projecting machine dies away, one is left longing for more. In order that there should be a fitting musical background to the masterpiece, I have arranged to double the Lyceum Orchestra. Besides this, an invisible choir will give added realism to the entertainment by singing the beautiful hymns of the Christian martyrs. Quo Vadis will prove the greatest picture of our time. Quo Vadis debuted at the Lyceum in April 1913, just one month after its world premiere in Berlin. According to Sydney's The Sun newspaper, it played for 10 weeks, and the Lyceum sold nearly 200,000 tickets, which is staggering given that Sydney's city and metropolitan population then stood at just 700,000 people. Other blockbusters, such as The Last Days of Pompeii, The Prisoner of Zender and Tessa the D'Urbervilles would follow through the year. Spencer also had great success with another of his imports, Kinemacolor, the world's first colour film system. Spencer had first seen Kinemacolor footage of an Indian military parade while he was in New York, and he described it to Sydney's The Sun this way. I was simply staggered with the magnificent effect produced. The brilliant uniforms of the soldiers, the dashing swords, the gleaming rifle barrels, together with the noble grandeur of the East, made it all appear real. And for the moment, one imagined that the glorious pageant was actually happening. By January 1913, Kinema Colour subjects were playing at the Lyceum. Then, in the middle of the year, Spencer unveiled Edison's Kinetophone. A few brief years ago, Mr. Thomas A. Edison presented to the world the kinetoscope. Inventors the world over have endeavoured to synchronise the phonograph and motion picture, but it remains for Mr. Edison, to whom the world owes the phonograph and motion picture, 
to combine his two great inventions into this one which is now entertaining you and is called the Cinephiphone. Speaking to Sydney's The Sunday Times newspaper, Spencer talked up his talking machine this way. The kinetophone represents the perfect synchronisation of sound and action and, in my opinion, marks the greatest advance in the progress of motion photography. Spencer had imported 30 of the machines at a cost of £10,000, yet compared with the Chrono Megaphone, which was still then in service, Edison's new gizmo proved an unwieldy system that depended on long leather belts connecting projector and gramophone. Even the veteran projectionist, the Senora, was helpless, and sound would soon be out of sync. What's more, rats loved chewing on the kinetophone's leather belts, and it was reported that they'd gnaw through them at the Lyceum four times a week. On the production front, Spencer's pictures captured more important moments in Australian history. In March 1913, Raymond Longford directed a film of The Naming of Canberra. This 1,200-foot production, which can still be seen today, showed foundation stones being laid by the Governor-General Lord Denham, the Prime Minister Andrew Fisher and Minister for Home Affairs King O'Malley, along with the pageantry of a military parade and various politicians in attendance, including then-Attorney-General and future Prime Minister William Morris Hughes. Sadly, Spencer's major 1913 fictional drama, The Epic Australia Calls, is lost. And of all his films, this would be the most fascinating to see today, for numerous reasons, good and not so good. Reportedly made over an entire year, with Raymond Longford directing, all three Higgins brothers, Ernest, Tasman and Arthur working the cameras, Australia Calls was a blatant piece of racist anti-Asian invasion scaremongering written by a couple of contributors from The Bulletin magazine. The Age newspaper's description gives us a good idea of what we're missing. Quote, the picture commences, an opening, which takes the form of a prologue with a series of incidents intended to convey the pleasure-loving nature of Australians, who are seen enjoying a race meeting and a football match. Meanwhile, secretly, 20,000 Mongolians are being landed. As they march to attack the city of Sydney, the call to arms is sounded. There were scenes of the Asian enemy taking control of Sydney and using a wireless radio to order their fleet at sea to attack the harbour city. The film also showed Australian men responding to the call to arms and pioneering aviator William Hart using his plane to swoop in and save the heroine from the clutches of the enemy. Australia Calls was Spencer's attempt at making a film on the scale of those coming out of Europe. And due to its message that Australians needed to be prepared to defend the homeland against the Yellow Peril, he was able to secure the assistance of the Ministry of Defence to use actual military personnel and equipment for large-scale scenes. Longford also recruited from Sydney's Chinatown for extras to play the generic Mongolians. But Australia Calls True Triumph was incredibly clever model work and photographic superimposition that created a set-piece sequence showing St Mary's Cathedral burning to the ground and the rest of Sydney in flames. Upon its release in July 1913, the Sydney Sportsman newspaper said that this sequence, called The Burning of Sydney, was, quote, almost uncanny in its grim realism. Around this time, Spencer and the Senora appear to have made yet another of their overseas trips. Upon their return, he spoke to Sydney's The Daily Telegraph, which in late December reported that Spencer's belief in Australian production was more fervent than ever. Quote, when Mr C. Spencer of moving picture fame came back from his trip to Europe and America, people asked him, what have you been doing there? But Mr Spencer only smiled. The time had not come for an announcement. Now that arrangements have been completed, it is found, 
that his firm is about to start on a large scale of manufacture in Australia of moving pictures with a purely Australian atmosphere and sentiment. What is particularly important is the fact that he was able to successfully negotiate with the distributing film houses of America and Great Britain for the placing of these productions in the picture shows of those countries. To ensure he was competing with the world on its own terms, Spencer hired pioneering American film executive Stanley Twist to consult and help train Australian directors, actors and writers in the latest in cinematic techniques. He also hired English producer Alexander Butler to manage the Rushcutters Bay studio. In February 1914, Spencer's next film, The Shepherd of the Southern Cross, described as a romance of the Never Never Land, got underway, with shooting taking place around Bathurst. Alexander Butler was the director, with beautiful young Australian actress Vera Pearce, aunt to future Australian Prime Minister Harold Holt, making her feature film debut. Then, out of the blue, and despite all of his belief in the Australian film industry and his plans for motion picture production, Charles' cousin Spencer resigned. On the 28th of February 1914, there appeared in Sydney's Daily Telegraph a small article, quote, Mr. C. Spencer announces that, though he has resigned from the directorates of a number of picture concerns, this does not mean he will leave Sydney, since he retains various important interests here. Just like that, Spencer was out of Spencer's pictures, and when The Shepherd of the Southern Cross was released in May 1914, publicity materials proclaimed it the first production from Australasian films, and that it had been supervised by Alexander Butler. No mention was made of Spencer's involvement. As for his dream of an Australian film industry, well, the Combine put local film production on the back burner, and they sacked Raymond Longford. After all, why make movies when you can just import them? The Combine refusing to make films and its business practices ensuring non-sanctioned local movies couldn't be shown was, when combined with the start of the Great War and the rise of Hollywood, a blow from which the Australian film industry never fully recovered. In October 1914, Spencer gave an interview to The Theatre magazine telling his side of the story. Quote, All my attempts to have pictures produced here were successfully resisted, again and again. I knew how favourable were the conditions here for the production of pictures. I know what success had already attended my own efforts in that direction, and I knew through my frequent tours abroad that, in addition to our having an Australian market for Australian-made pictures, all the markets of the world were open to us, Picture production has been killed. Today, it is as dead as the proverbial doornail. Can you believe that this is the only place in the world where pictures are not being made? Such is indeed the case. Australia has become the dumping ground for all the producers in the world, when it could, most profitably, be taking its place side by side with other picture-producing countries and providing work in Australia for thousands of its own people. As evidence of the truth of what Spencer said, we need to look no further than the fact that several of his dramas were released in the United States around this time and they played for months and did good business, which is something that few Australian producers can claim a century later. While contractually Spencer had to stay out of the motion picture business, that didn't mean that the Signora couldn't get into the game. And that's just what she did. In 1915, the Signora opened the Strand Theatre in Brisbane, and she followed with another strand in Toowoomba and then another in Newcastle. This wasn't done surreptitiously. Newspaper articles at the time reported her as the proprietor who ensured a classy cinema-going experience. 
and to show the latest and greatest films, the Senora had to be dealing with the Combine. Here's how the Toowoomba Chronicle wrote her up in March 1918. Quote, In the moving picture world of Australia, the name of Senora Spencer is a household word. She has many imitators, but none of them has yet soared to the supreme heights reached and maintained by the enterprising lady as an exhibitor. Like a beacon light, she lands upon a pinnacle of glory, alone. Her picture theatres are daily and nightly thronged by many thousands. This article, which was almost certainly from a press release, went on in this vein for a while before announcing, quote, One new service with which Senora has completed arrangements is Goldwyn Pictures, containing wonderful dramas starring some of the brightest constellations in the whole motion picture firmament. This sounded very much like the Senora was striking distribution deals outside of the Combine. But it wasn't until the middle of 1918 when the Combine came to believe the Spencers were trying to move on the lease of the Sydney Lyceum that they moved against the couple. The Combine alleged that Spencer was using his wife as a front for how could a mere woman run such an operation? The theatre magazine encapsulated this suspicion in the blunt headline, quote, was Signora Spencer merely a blind for her husband? If that was true, then Spencer was in breach of the no-compete clause of the contract that had taken his company public back in 1911. But obviously, this allegation conveniently ignored the simple fact that the Signora had lived and breathed films alongside her husband for the past 15 years, there for every screening, deal, tour, physically showing movies and counting the box office. There's no doubt the Senora was capable of running three theatres. Adding to the insult, the Combine alleged that her husband had illegally allowed his name, Spencer, to be attached to her picture shows. This also ignored what was absolutely obvious. Spencer was the surname the Senora had also used professionally since they'd started showing movies in 1903. But legally, his name was Spencer Cousins, and her married name was Mary Stewart Cousins, meaning this defence could be compromised. The Combine sued the Spencers and got an injunction against any Lyceum lease being granted to them. In late July 1918, the parties went to court in Sydney, the high-profile case involving not less than four King's Councils, along with numerous other legal eagles. The costs were running at £500 per day, and it was thought the case would last a month. The Combine's representative publicly said he feared that even after all that time and expense, there would be no satisfactory solution. So, after two days of court arguments, the parties went into negotiation. At 1am on the 31st of July 1918, the Spencers and the Combine settled. Though the financial terms remained confidential, the deal likely involved a substantial payment to the Spencers who were to transfer the Strand leases to the Combine and stay out of the motion picture industry. After more than 15 years in which they'd toured the greatest early motion pictures, shot and screened their own short films in record time, established Australia's first permanent cinema, documented the nation's people, places and events, made a slew of successful feature films and fostered the talents of Raymond Longford, Lottie Lyle and the Higgins brothers, along with introducing the very first sound and colour pictures to Australian audiences, Spencer and the Senora were finished in the film business. They were also finished with Australia. Spencer and the Senora returned to British Columbia where they'd first met. In November 1920, the Vancouver Sun reported his new venture, dairy farming. 
Spencer had paid nearly $21,000 for the 766-acre Minicata Ranch, 17 miles east of Vancouver, in the river and mountain country. Spencer and the Senora stayed there for three years, buying up adjacent land to expand the ranch so that by 1923 it was worth $200,000, about $3 million Canadian dollars today. In June 1923, Spencer did a land swap, trading Minicata Ranch for the Chilco Ranch on the Chilcotin River in wild and remote country some 375 miles north of Vancouver. The Vancouver Sun newspaper ran the story on page one, calling it, quote, one of the biggest land transactions in this province during recent years, if not in the history of British Columbia. The Chilco Ranch comprised 20,000 acres of land, 1,000 of which was under cultivation for animal feed, and there were another 30 to 40,000 acres of free grazing lands for the 1,600 head of mostly purebred cattle and 200 or so horses. The deal included a large, fully furnished ranch house, two outpost headquarters, a sawmill, a small general store, and log cabins for the 20 or so cowboys employed year-round. When Spencer took over the Chilco Ranch, its annual revenue stood at $47,000 a year, a figure he would double by the end of the decade. During the mid-1920s, Spencer was frequently in the news for buying pedigreed bulls and horses to improve his livestock. He also bought or leased adjacent lands so that the Chilco Ranch grew to be an inland empire. And harking back to his early days in this part of British Columbia, he upgraded the ranch's store and even gave it a motto, everything from a wagon to a needle. Speaking to the Daily Province newspaper in March 1924, Spencer was every bit as evangelical about his endeavour and his environment as he had been about making films back in Australia. The Chilcotin Valley, he said, was ideal for growing and raising everything and he was planning on doing a lot more of both, increasing his cattle herd from 2,000 to 4,000 and the acres under irrigation from 1,000 to 5 or 6,000. In addition to cattle and horses, he was also going to raise purebred pigs. As the newspaper noted, quote, his faith, indeed, in the livestock possibilities of the province is unbounded. But as the 1920s came to a close, Spencer's faith in everything was shaken. Isabella Huntley, the Senora's mother, to whom they'd remained close, died on the 4th of October 1929. Twenty days later, Wall Street crashed wiping out a sizable chunk of Spencer's wealth and triggering the Great Depression. Frustratingly, Spencer still had money in Australia, including war bond debentures and bank shares, but he was unable to get it out of the country. While still a wealthy man in terms of assets, Spencer also carried hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt. The pressure took its toll, and in 1930, Spencer suffered a nervous breakdown, though he apparently refused to enter a sanitarium and instead put himself under the supervision of his doctor, G.R. Baker. At Chilco Ranch, Spencer also had the Senora to look out for him, along with two of his top men. They were Edward Smith, who four years ago had sold his Vancouver shop to manage Spencer's general store, and Walter Stoddart, who'd been the ranch manager since 1924. In close contact with Spencer, these men were reportedly asked to monitor him for suicidal behaviours, with Spencer having said that he might kill himself. They were also exposed to his increasingly erratic behaviour, with Stoddart later saying they humoured the boss's foolish requests in regard to the ranch to help keep the peace. 
but it was what his doctor, G.R. Baker, told Ed Gould for his 1978 book, Ranching in Western Canada, that's the strangest element in Spencer's Unravelling. Australia's former movie king of all, now British Columbia's biggest cattle baron, may have come to believe that the devil had come for him. Dr Baker said that one of the plywood panels in Spencer's ranch house bore a pattern that showed what he called a, quote, perfect devil. Quote, it had everything, horns and tail and cloven hoof. When the light changed, this figure changed, and when the room darkened, it seemed to swell. Oh, it was an awful thing, I tell you. From there, author Ed Gould imagined that Spencer was plagued by this devil, that it followed him, taunted him, and eventually demonstrated its ability to possess the bodies of other men and peer out at him through their eyes. This is fanciful stuff, but Gould's more sober description does suggest the Doctor shared the belief that Spencer was affected to an extent by this mark of the beast. Quote, So this poor man kept the devil to himself and had only one confidant, Dr. G.R. Baker, who used to go to the Chilco Ranch in the hunting season. And at the time, although the doctor could see the outline of the devil and watched with amused detachment as the figure expanded and contracted according to the play of light, he did not dream of the adverse effect the figure was having on the mind of his friend, Cousin Spencer. Did the devil make Spencer do what he did next? There's no way to know, but it actually does fit what happened. On Wednesday, the 10th of September, 1930, Spencer went out to the Deer Creek Ranch, one of Chilco's outposts, with his storekeeper, Edward Smith, and his ranch manager, Walter Stoddart. Spencer was helping the men load a truck when Stoddart saw on his boss's face what he called a satanic expression. Next thing, Spencer raised a shotgun and fired. The blast ripped through Stoddart's right arm. Spencer turned the gun. Edward Smith tried to run, but Spencer shot him in the back. Both men were alive, but horrifically injured. Spencer, shotgun in hand, his belt loaded with shells, disappeared into the bush. Using a shoelace as a tourniquet, Stoddart stemmed his bleeding, but Smith was beyond saving, especially as they were so far from anywhere. As Smith's life ebbed, he dictated his will to his friend. With Smith dead in a pool of his own blood, Stoddart needed to save himself, and that meant getting in the truck and trying to make it back to the ranch house. At that ranch house, the senora was worried that her husband and his men were overdue. With the ranch's carpenter, Christopher Vick, the senora set out in search of Spencer. What they found was the overturned truck in a ditch three miles from Deer Creek. Suffering from shock, pain and blood loss, Walter Stoddard had overturned the vehicle but he was alive and able to tell them what had happened. The Senora and Christopher Vick rushed Stoddard back to the ranch. From there, he was transferred to Williams Lake Hospital, where his arm was amputated and grave doubts were held for his recovery. Spencer was out there in the wilderness somewhere, armed and apparently insane. Men with guns protected the Senora at Chilco Ranch, under shoot-to-kill orders if they should see Spencer. The morning after the tragedy, a posse of about 60 men was put together, comprising Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Provincial Police, Indian Trackers, Forest Rangers and Cowboys. Leading the pack, Spencer's very own dog, which had been pressed into bloodhound service, though before long it refused to go on. 
the senora said she was sure that her husband was dead, saying that if Spencer was alive, he surely would have come back to her. She posted a $500 reward for his body and soon doubled that and then doubled it again. The intensive search, including the river and nearby lake, turned up nothing. Back in Australia, the story was huge news. The film magazine titled Everyone's ran a big story just a few days after the murder under the headline, Cousin Spencer Runs Amok. The article contained a haunting passage, quote, Strange how unconscious prophecy works. Old-timers remember how he used to love to stand on the stage and lecture on those two early-day thrillers, which helped him build his fortunes, Cowboys and Indians and The Great Train Robbery. Guns, slaughter, wild chases. Now Spencer himself, Spencer the millionaire, the biggest landholder in Colombia, has gone raving into the bush insane, with blood on his hands and a posse at his heels. Do the crazy pictures leaping through his mind contain any recollection of Cowboys and Indians and the Great Train Robbery? As days became weeks and Spencer wasn't found, Australian newspapers turned to speculating about his escape. As Smith Weekly asked, Is Charles Spencer Cousins hiding somewhere in Australia? He wasn't. On the 29th of October 1930, a Native American named Little Charlie found a body in the Chilcotin River and a shotgun by the riverbank not far away. Spencer had been found. True to her word, the Senora paid Little Charlie his $2,000 reward. Post-mortem examination of Spencer's decomposed remains made it clear that he hadn't shot himself. Two days later, Halloween, an inquest was held at the site of the tragedy, Deer Creek Ranch. There, a jury decided that 56-year-old cousin Spencer had committed suicide by jumping into the Chilcotin River while temporarily insane. Spencer's tragedy could have come from the Great Train Robbery, or perhaps more fittingly, from that violent Dan Morgan bushranger movie he'd made back in 1911. But the Senora's fate? That was more like a melodrama that might have starred Raymond Longford and Lottie Lyle. In January 1931, the Senora inherited Spencer's estate, valued at nearly $330,000, though there were debts and liabilities of about $210,000. Still, the balance, about $2 million Canadian dollars today, was plenty for her to continue ownership of the Chilco Ranch with a new husband. That man was Christopher Vick, the ranch carpenter who'd gone with her in search of Spencer on the day of the shooting. Mary Stuart Huntley, who'd become Mary Stuart Cousins, who'd been better known as Senora Spencer, was now Mary Stuart Vick. In the years to come, the Vicks continued to improve Chilco Ranch. Then, in early 1940, Mary, aged 61, and Christopher, aged 55, retired from ranching. They were ready to enjoy their lives in urban comfort, and they moved into a beautiful Tudor-style mansion in the Angus Park area of Vancouver. It was in this house, just three months later, that the Spencer story came to its end. And it's an end you just couldn't write. In mid-April 1940, Mary, who frequently suffered laryngitis, took ill and was attended by the prominent doctor and former Canadian Member of Parliament, Alfred Thompson. On the 19th of April, the 70-year-old doctor saw Mary and was pleased that she seemed to be getting better. But later that night, she took a turn for the worse and the doctor returned. He examined her and saw that she was dying. What was wrong with the senora isn't known, but at around 11 o'clock that night, with her husband and doctor at her bedside, she breathed her last. Dr. Thompson took a moment, checked her vitals, and declared 
that she had passed. Seconds later, the doctor pitched forward onto the floor, dead of a massive heart attack. The incredible coincidence of this double death dominated the front page of the Vancouver Sun the following day, with much of its large article devoted to recounting the tragic rise and fall of Spencer and the Signora. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love you to leave a review and rating at iTunes, as it helps other people find the podcast. If you want to get a look at some of Spencer's films, visit ForgottenAustralia.com. And while you're there, you can read the first chapter of my book, Australia's Sweetheart, which is the biography of Mary Maguire, our forgotten Hollywood star. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundangara and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.